We're talking, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Keith Law, the author of The Inside Game. Keith was a longtime writer for ESPN, and now he writes for The Athletic. Thanks a lot, Keith, for coming in these uh, tough times on, on Iron Sports. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Keith, your book, Inside Game, I read it this weekend. It's uh, tremendous. What a read. <laughs> and it really go after a lot of the thoughts in terms of baseball and, 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 and thought of the ideas that people make and all the mistakes that people make. I mean, these are people that make a lot of getting paid a lot of money to make decisions. And you show them, you not only say this was a bad decision, but you give reasons why they made the wrong decision. Right. That is what I hope to do, it's not just to sort of poke fun at people who made bad decisions. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but that's not really the purpose of the book. My idea was to use some of these examples from baseball history to illustrate these concepts, the, these ideas of cognitive biases and illusions that affect absolutely everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, how smart you are, what education you've had. If you're human, you will fall prey to these biases. And so but a lot of the literature describing them tends towards the academic. It's not necessarily accessible to everybody. So my idea, my original pitch for the book, was to use baseball to make some of these things more accessible, more easily understood by anybody, regardless of what your background is in psychology or economics, so that you could maybe spot these things in your own life. Because like I said, we all fall prey to them. It's a matter of making sure your process, when you have to make a big decision, is set up so that you can work around them. And one, one of the biases you mentioned earlier in the book is the outcome bias. And they really go after Bob Bradley in this because they, you get that whenever someone wins or does something, you're, they've been known as like World Series uh, champion manager Bob Bradley. But you went in the book and said whether he couldn't have managed this World Series in the, two, in the 2001 World Series any worse. It was probably the worst managed. And I loved your comment. You said Joe Torrey was playing chess and Bob Bradley was playing Candyland. So explain outcome bias a little bit with that 2001 World Series. So outcome bias is essentially judging a process by the results as opposed to understanding that there may be factors beyond everyone's control that affected the results. So in this particular case, in the 2001 World Series, Bob Brenly had one of the worst series I've ever seen a manager have <laughs> in the postseason in baseball. He just made bad decision after bad decision. Some of them were snap decisions in the, over the course of a game, but many of them were things he clearly decided beforehand batting Tony Womack, who was a horrible hitter at getting on base, leadoff, regularly having the number two hitter, often Craig Council, bunt Womack over to second, ahead of number three hitter Luis Gonzalez, who had hit 57 home runs that season. Others were, like I said, the snap decisions within the game, such as the way he managed Byung Kyung Kim, the Diamondbacks closer at that point, who ended up giving up two very late leads in games that the Diamondbacks ultimately lost. Yeah, the Diamondbacks won the World Series because of things that had nothing to do with Bob Bradley, primarily because of Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling, <laughs> who both had, uh, each individually had one of the best postseason series we've ever seen a pitcher have, or certainly in the most modern era of the playoffs. They bailed Bradley out. So did Bradley win the World Series, or was he just standing nearby when the Diamondbacks won the World Series? I would argue the latter. Yet, because Bradley won, he was praised for being a good manager. He was a World Series winning manager. The truth is, he didn't manage well. If he were the only factor, the Diamondbacks would have lost the series. <laughs> the fact that they won the World Series does not justify the moves that he made. But outcome bias is essentially saying it worked, so it was good. That's not how things work in the real world. You must judge a process by the process, 
not strictly by the results. And then there's another bias. You talk about base rate neglect. And, and I loved how, because we talk about drafting all the time. We're having the NFL draft coming up. And, and the point is, you really don't like the idea of drafting high school pitchers. And it hasn't worked out. But, in, but of course, teams keep drafting high school pitchers. Yes, they do, despite, I think, pretty copious evidence and sort of a longtime scouting maxim that the two most dangerous things to do in the first round of the baseball draft are to take a high school pitcher or worse, to take a high school catcher. <laughs> now, with high school catchers, there just aren't that many of them, so it's not as interesting to study. But with high school pitchers, we have a pretty large sample to look at. And if you break all first-round picks up into four major categories, high school position players, high school pitchers, college position players, college pitchers, there's no comparison. High school pitchers are the worst category by far. They have the highest failure rate. They have the lowest percentage of guys who turn out to become stars. We see way more high school pitchers taken in the first round than we should, given these base rates, what the class as a whole, all high school pitchers have done after they were drafted. But what you will also hear from scouts and even from executives is that if you want to get a Clayton Kershaw, you want to get a Madison Bumgarner, you have to take high school pitcher in the first round because both were both were high school left-handers taken in the top 10 picks of their respective drafts, 06 and 07. That's not wrong. It's true. Those guys were first-rounders, and they were first-rounders who absolutely worked out. But if you focus specifically on them, on individual examples that did work out, you ignore the base rate. You neglect that base rate. And ignore the fact that at the time the Dodgers took Clayton Kershaw with the seventh overall pick in 2006, they were probably to some extent ignoring or simply deciding against judging it on the base rate. The fact that Clayton Kershaw was just another high school pitcher at that point. And he was not seen as a sure thing at all. In fact, his last or second to last outing in high school was quite, was really not good. And there was a pretty decent chance he wasn't going to go in the top 10 picks at all. He was, very much another risky high school player, high school pitcher, I should say, specifically, and that every time you take a high school pitcher and you think, well, we might be getting another Clayton Kershaw, you're ignoring the much higher probability that you're actually getting the next Casey Kiker, a high school pitcher taken in the same first round as Clayton Kershaw, who never got out of A ball. <laughs> and then I love your discussion of groupthink. And now we have stats and we analyze it, but there's a lot of a lot of thoughts out there that don't really parlay themselves into stats. And one of them is, of course, Harold Baines, who just got last year into the Hall of Fame. And the, 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 his reputation was he's a clutch hitter. And you said, show in the book how there really is no clutch hitter. But the idea is that if people keep saying Harold Baines is a clutch hitter, Harold Baines is a clutch hitter, then everybody thinks he's the clutch hitter, even though there's no evidence right. that he's a clutch hitter. Right. And, well, and a lot of it, in his case, too, there's sort of this revisionist history that goes on, often goes on within baseball. It's happening with Omar Vizquel right now. Omar Vizquel in his entire major league career appeared one time on an MVP ballot. Yet he received something like, he appeared on something like 40% of the Hall of Fame ballot this past off season. So none of you actually thought he was one of the most valuable players in baseball while he was actually playing. <laughs> but now that he's done, you're going back and rewriting history and saying, no, this guy was one of the best players in baseball history. Pro tip, he actually wasn't. He was a good player. He does not belong in the Hall of Fame. And what happened in the case of Baines in particular, I think, is that once he was put into the Hall of Fame, once he was actually on that Veterans Committee ballot, suddenly there was this change in thinking. Oh, no, no, he was, he was a clutch hitter. He was, he was a better hitter than anybody actually realized. And 
people sort of go along with it to justify this decision of him being put into the Hall of Fame. I mean, that that case, even describing that in cognitive biases, in terms of cognitive biases, I, I was aware I was on a little shakier ground because it may have just been flat-out nepotism. <laughs> Tony LaRusso pushing for one of his favorite guys. That's also very clearly a factor. But it gave me a chance to talk about some of the rather ridiculous things Tony LaRusso has said, especially later in his career, which shows that while he had a very long and distinguished tenure as a baseball manager, a lot of what he thinks, a lot of the things he thinks and says about baseball are just not true. We're talking to Keith Law, the author of Inside Game, who's a longtime writer at ESPN, and now he works for The Athletic. You gave a stat about Nolan Ryan. When I read it, I had to reread it 10 more times. I cannot believe. Do you, Nolan Ryan pitched in a game 13 innings, 235 pitches, and faced 58 batters. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. And But you mentioned but Ryan and that perspective of survivorship biases. We talked about how, well, can't pitchers pitch 130, 140, 50 innings like they used to? And really it was only like, they always point to Nolan Ryan as the pitcher that did it. And you say he is such an outlier that you just cannot use Nolan Ryan as an example of anything. If you start talking about, well, at least when I start talking about pitch counts, particularly for high school and college pitchers on Twitter, it is a mortal lock that some mouth breather will show up in my mentions and say, but what about Nolan Ryan? Yes, Nolan Ryan did pitch a tremendous amount, even when young. He also missed about two years due to injuries when he was extremely young, and that probably led to the Mets' decision to trade him in the first place. So I wouldn't say any of that actually worked out. But once he got to his early 20s, he turned out he was extremely durable, managed to stay healthy basically into his early 40s. He is the most extreme outlier, and he is the perfect example of survivorship bias, which uh, is, in this case, is if you say, well, pitchers can't survive high pitch counts when they're young. And someone says, well, what about Nolan Ryan? You remember Nolan Ryan because he's the one who survived, hence the name survivorship bias. What you don't remember are all the guys who got blown out by excessive use, whether in high school or college or in an earlier era, even in the low minors, who blew out their arms, their elbows, or especially their shoulders, which even today is still often a career ender and never managed to recover. If I tell you about a guy like Chris Honnell or Corwin Malone, those names don't mean anything to most fans, but they were worked fairly hard when young, particularly as amateurs. They got hurt. And they never panned out. And we do have a lot of evidence that says high pitch counts in game, high innings counts over the course of a, a season or a, an amateur spring do produce worse outcomes with higher rates of injuries. And we know that that's not good for pitchers as a whole. So rather than just testing them all out to see which ones are Nolan Ryan and not caring that you broke the rest of them, why don't we use them all more carefully? and let the Nolan Ryans more gradually emerge over time while keeping everybody else healthy. (laughs) And I love how you talk about status quo bias. And two times in my life I've been watching sports and somebody has thrown furniture out of a window. And they were both Red Sox fans, completely different fans, one in 86 World Series when uh, the Bill Buckner World Series, and also mm-hmm. the 2002 AL Championship game when Pedro left Pedro Martinez in the game and the Yankees came back and won that. And just amazing games. And I couldn't believe when I was at Penn one time and I saw a, a couch go out a window, which I could not believe they got a couch out the window. And then in 2002 when I right. saw a chair fly out. So I think Red Sox fans, that the whole bias should be maybe the Red Sox fans like to throw furniture when their team is doing terrible. But the point is that you raise that the status quo bias and I thought it was really interesting because you compared those two series. In the case of status quo bias, 
I think it's easiest for people to understand just in general terms. And I do give these two very specific examples of a manager essentially refusing to take a player out of the game, replace him with someone who was a better option. Bill Buckner in the first example, Pedro Martinez in the second example. But to think about status quo bias, just think of it this way. When you are asked, do I leave things as they are or do I make a change? Do I keep my current job or change to another job that is probably a little bit better? It feels riskier. It feels more momentous to make that change. There's comfort in simply not changing anything, even though that is also a choice. The two choices don't feel as equal because they are not as maybe as significant emotionally, the idea of making a change. I just changed jobs. I just left ESPN after 13 years. I left working for the Walt Disney Company, a large and very stable and very successful company, a good company to work for, to go take a chance with a smaller, newer, uh, and sort of less proven outlet in, with the athletic. I decided it was a better offer and I did do it, but it absolutely crossed my mind that the easiest thing in the world to do was to stay. It was my own status quo bias because it involved really not doing anything. All I had to do was put my name on a new contract and nothing would have changed. That felt like it was easier. And on the emotional side, it felt like that maybe that is the better option. But I knew rationally speaking, it wasn't. When I looked at all of the variables, all the considerations, I realized that the athletic was the better place for me personally, at least, and that I was letting status quo bias creep into my thinking and cause some doubt. And then the idea we, we see a lot in baseball and the sunk cost fallacy, because I was watching I, one of the last sporting events I was before they had the shutdown was I saw the Tigers play the Astros. And are the Nationals, I think it was either the Astros or Nationals, a fit team. And you say Miguel Cabrera out there and you're like, wow, this is Miguel Cabrera, future Hall of Famer, but he's still going to be playing. He's not playing well, but these teams and you talk about with Pujols, with the, with the, with the LA Angels, the idea that these players, they pay so much money, they, they get paid, but they keep playing even though they really shouldn't be out there. Right. And what happens in the case of Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, we see this constantly with players towards the end of their careers who are signed to contracts that might be reasonable at the point when they're signed for that first or second season, but that as players age and particularly position players, we know as they get to their late thirties, they start to decline if they haven't started earlier. In those cases, teams would often be better off benching or even outright releasing those players than continuing to play them. But they, and you see in media coverage of when a player like that is released, for example, which is rare, but it does happen, oh, the team chose to eat his contract. It's simply not true. In baseball, at least, if the Angels release Albert Pujols tomorrow, he still gets every dime on the contract. And if they keep him, he still gets every dime on his contract. So there's no difference to them financially whether they keep him or, re- or release him, and whether they play him or they bench him. It is not a financial decision. It should strictly be a baseball decision. Is it worth having him on the roster? And if he's on the roster, is it worth having him in the lineup? Now, I argue in his case, the answer to both of those questions is no. But the Angels have chosen not to do anything with him, to continue to have him on the roster and in the lineup. And I argue that is the sunk cost fallacy. Instead of recognizing that that cost is already happening, they've already committed to spend all that money, they can they let that become a variable in the decision. Well, we're paying him, so we should play him. We should get something out of him, even though all the evidence says 
you're not going to get anything out of him because he's not that good. And it's also better, like, I always think it's almost better for some teams when these players that they give these bad contracts to just get hurt. Like Jacoby Ellsbury for the Yankees. I mean, they never had mm-hmm. to have that issue because he's just hurt, so it's easier just to have him cut, he's injured, and forget about him. If Jacoby Ellsbury's out there hitting 200 with one home run, then you'd have all these issues of your, you know, look, Jacoby Ellsbury's out there, we signed him for this huge contract. It is easier when they get hurt. This sort of takes the decision out of your hands, right? Particularly because if the player has, as, as Ellsbury did, a significant enough injury to end up, say, on the 60-day DL, then he's off the roster. Right? He's off the 40-man roster entirely. With uh, I don't know that other sports have something that's equivalent to that, but in our case, at least, you can kick the can down the road. Right? You're paying Ellsbury anyway, but he's hurt, so we don't have to worry about playing him. He's so hurt that he goes on the 60-day DL, he doesn't have to take up a 40-man roster spot for the entire season. Eventually, you do have to make a decision. You have to reinstate him to the 40-man roster in October, but you avoid confronting that sunk cost fallacy for long periods of time during each season because the injury has essentially taken him out of the way. And we talk about long-term baseball. You mentioned in your book and a lot of the fallacies, but just when we see these long-term baseball contracts, and I heard Scott Boris discuss about saying, well, really, we know that at the end of the year they're going to be terrible, but you can't really – I'm helping the owners out because you can't pay a player uh, $60 million or $70 million. So that's why you have to give the Garrett Cole the th- nine-year 324 because really this year right. you, you give him 50 or 60. But again, these teams with the pitchers that they keep, I mean, you look at how many contracts. I mean, my friends always say to this, most do these contracts ever work out? And you can always find that one or two that work out. But in general, these right. long-term deals have not worked out at all. No, if you look at Justin Berlander, his contract arguably has worked out. Every contract he signed has arguably worked out. There will eventually come a point when it doesn't, right? He's Most of these pitchers, even if their long-term contracts seem to be pretty good, eventually the body's no longer willing and the contract is still going at that point. That point will happen for for every pitcher. But what we see in particular is teams giving out contracts of of durations to pitchers. This sort of comes back to that base rate neglect. The number of pitchers who've gotten contracts over five years who've still been effective past the fifth year of those contracts, it's a pretty small percentage of all such contracts. And the longest contracts of all given to pitchers have almost never worked out. There was outrage when Kevin Brown got a seven-year deal from the Dodgers 20 years ago, (laughs) and we're still doing that. I am not at all opposed to players getting paid. Pay them $40 million a year. If that's what they're worth this year, and Mike Trout is probably worth $50 million a year to the Angels. Pay them that now. But it is the duration of that contract, of these contracts, which then leads into back into that sunk cost fallacy. Well, we've got this guy, and we're paying him $30 million. We have to use him. No, you don't. One way you can avoid the sunk cost fallacy is to actually pay him more money over a shorter period of time so that the length of the contract better coincides with the end of his effectiveness. We've been talking to Keith Law, the author of The Inside Game, a great book. I know people are stuck at home looking for things to do. Uh, if you love baseball, and if you don't really love baseball that much but are just interested in the different fallacies, I think this is a great book to read. So, Keith, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. <laughs> 